Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Sweetie, why is there a giant dust ball in our living room? You like it? Six feet tall, a world record. It's making the room musty. Don't turn on the ceiling fan. My dust ball, it's everywhere. Wowzer. I'll go to BJ's Wholesale Club and grab Swiffer Wipes. Plus, we need Tide, Charmin, Crest. My life's work. Poof. Honey, you got a lint ball in your mustache. Yes. All gone. Get $20 in BJ's rewards when you spend $100 on qualifying items in one transaction through March 15th. Go to BJ's.com slash spend 100, get 20 for details. BJ's, absurdly simple savings. Welcome, everyone, into Garden of Doom. And this week, we're sort of going to get back to our original roots. Um, because of the show's success and, and really the guest booking success and some of the introductions and friends I've made along the way, the show really got ahead of its skis and has gotten to a level of guests that I never dreamed I would get to in under three years of podcasting. Um, and because of that very nice problem... The show's gone in a lot of directions, which I thought were amazing and awesome. And we've studied religions and theosophy and the history of languages, and we're going to continue to do all that stuff. But in the beginning, we were just going to go with the basics. And 
I've had shows on cryptids. I've had shows with casual conversation about Bigfoot with our back when uh, Shaw was my co-host and with our good friend, for those of you who are in the wrestling podcast world, the legendary Kevin Castle. Uh, we've had two cryptid investigators. Uh, uh, Chris O'Brien sort of covered everything paranormal. Uh, actually, Ryan Musgrave Evans in Australia talked about cryptids. And actually, there was another gentleman in the Southeast. I am so sorry I forgot his name, but he's very prominent in it. So anyway, there's plenty of shows that touch on cryptids, but we haven't had a pure Bigfoot episode with a Bigfoot researcher that does all that. So I found Dr. Russ Jones who he is the Bigfoot doctor. And I was so grateful that he responded to my query and said, sure, let's do this. So Dr. Russell Jones, who is a doctor of chiropractic medicine, who's seen over 200,000 patients and hails from southeastern Ohio, but lives in West Virginia now and has done a lot of research and studies in, in those areas and beyond, I'm sure, and has his own podcast as well, has joined us. Thank you for patiently listening through the intro as we both discussed. Neither one of us is tech guys and understand we sometimes need to do things manually. But welcome it's to the show. good to see you, Thanks Jeff. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Um, please introduce yourself. Do a better job of your background and, and your expertise and things like that. Okay. I'm Dr. Russ Jones. I've been a chiropractor for 31 years. As Jeff mentioned, I've seen over 200,000 patient visits. I uh, grew up in Southeast Ohio and... Went to Indiana, uh, Huntington College in Indiana, an undergraduate um, for a baseball scholarship, and then went on to Palmer College in Davenport, Iowa, which is where chiropractic was invented in the 1800s, and it's kind of the Harvard for chiropractors, and moved to West Virginia after um, completing that. And so here I am. Here he is. You know what? E even people who go <laughs> to the Harvard of chiropractic have to drop that they went to Harvard. That, that's, what I should that's exactly I right. Yeah, it's a it's the law. I I went to Emory, and they used to say it was the Harvard of the South, but I don't drop it because it really wasn't true. Even then, Duke was the <laughs> Harvard of the South. So maybe Emory is now. I don't know. It's been a while, but uh, maybe I'll start dropping that too. I went to the Emory of the South. Uh, maybe I should have done that thirty years ago, and I'd be more successful now. Anyway, enough about me. So. What got you interested in Bigfoot? I've listened to a lot of your shows, so I know. But, of course, my audience, let's not assume they've listened to your shows as well. And, and be feel, feel free to promote your show, your networks, the other shows, your co-hosts, anything you like. Okay. So um, the podcast I do is called Wide Open Research. It's part of the Untold Radio Network, which is, uh, was began by Doug Hycheck, which was the producer of Monster Quest, the hit TV show for many years. Mm -hmm. And so there is eight of us on there, one each day of the week and one morning show. And so, but what got in, in, me into Bigfoot initially, you know, I grew up in Southeast Ohio. I came from a very outdoorsy family. Many people think that their families are outdoorsy, but mine was really outdoorsy. We all hunted everything that was in. We all dug ginseng. We all trapped. We all had coon dogs. We all had rabbit dogs. We were in the woods all the time. And New Year's Day, 1977, I was rabbit hunting. And New Year's Eve, we got about four inches of snow in Ohio. New Year's Day, I was out there with a friend of mine and our dogs came along a hillside. And up on this hillside, there is a cave that, you know, you really can't see unless you know it's there. It's about 50 feet deep. And when I came along the hillside, there was these barefoot footprints they were fresh whatever had 
caused them, created them. It came out of that cave and I could see the toes. I could see it was about the size of a normal man. I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of Bigfoot at this point in my life. It was 1977. Of course, um, 1967 is the big Patterson-Gimlin film, which is kind of the modern era of Bigfoot becoming popular at that point. But I thought that, you know, it was the 70s. I thought maybe it was some type of a vagrant or a guy that was, you know, on drugs that were staying in this cave or something way out here in the woods. And so I went up there and looked inside and thought I'd find a fire, some clothes, and there was nothing there. And so... We just didn't know what it was. Uh, left there and didn't think anything more about it. Uh, later that summer, I was at a beaver dam that was not one that anyone knew about. It was about a mile up of hollow. My family had found it because, you know, we were, you know, probably running our dogs and somebody found the beaver dam. Out on the front part by the main road, it was so narrow you could jump across it. But once you got back in there, it was about four acres and the fishing was unbelievable. And I had ran snapping turtle hooks, which for the people that don't know what that is, you put like a chicken gizzard on a big hook and a snapping turtle will swallow it and it holds it there and you can go and get your snapping turtle. And totally. so I'd been there back in that area for many times. I was back there with my uncle fishing. It's very snaky. So we were both wearing um, pistols and uh, we were both standing on a dam, maybe 20 yards apart and across the dam from me. Wait, was how, old brushy. In, in What's that? how old were you in 77? I was uh, 12. Okay. I was 12 I think years I was, old. I think I was like nine. So we're a few years. Okay. Yeah. We're just a couple of years apart. Um, I just want to talk for a second about the seventies. Cause I think it's hysterical that <laughs> you were worried about hermits and caves. And for those people who are, who are, you know, younger, which is probably 90% of the audience in the seventies, we were led to believe that a lot of things were more dangerous and would be worrisome in our lives <laughs> than that was. Like quicksand. Quicksand was like <laughs> a real thing. Every TV show someone fell in quicksand. Uh Vagabonds, yeah. that was something of terror. And yes, we were led to believe that in caves and, and abandoned huts on the top of mountains or whatever, there were hermits and they were dangerous and you know, sort of like the the witch in uh Hansel and Gretel were there to kill us and eat us. So these these are not irrational fear, fears that Russ <laughs> is talking about. This this these were our urban legends before there were urban legends. Yeah, it seemed pretty rational to me at that point, not, uh, you know, if you don't know anything about Bigfoot and you find tracks in the snow that are fresh that, you know, it's it's 20 something degrees out and it's four inches of snow and something's barefooted. So, you know, it's, you know, it seemed rational, man on drugs, who knows? Sure, absolutely. LSD also, I mean, in, in elementary, we were we were seeing those videos with elementary with the yeah. people on LSD and PCP and like they'd see train tracks, so warning lights going in front yeah. of their eyes and someone would be dead at the bottom of the pool and they'd be saying, you're a great swimmer and things like that. This this And, and we went under our desks to pr- protect us from nuclear fallout, which uh, that would yes. be an, what, what an amazing protection, protective device that would be. So this was the 70s and the 80s, kids. This is your brain on drugs. It, yeah, that came, That was the 80s, but that, that yeah, was a great one, the fried egg, nice. So um, I'm standing back there by that beaver dam, and, you know, it's maybe, you know, 30 or 40 yards across to this brushy part, you know, water. I'm standing on the dam, the brush is on the other side, and I'm looking, and I'm just fishing quietly, and I hear something coming down through the woods. I glance over, I see my uncle's looking. I just assume that it's probably a deer coming down to drink or something, but... Then I hear very monkey-like screams, bushes shaking. And I look at my uncle and I'm like walking toward him like, what is that? What is that? And he's like, just look for a tree you can get to. Whatever it is has to come across water. And, you know, we're 
intensely watching and we just can't see through the brush and it lasted about a minute. And then, you know, now I know that that was pretty classical Bigfoot behavior as we have observed it over the decades now. But, um, at that time we just kept fishing, you know, we were woodsmen, we were raised in the woods. We were in there all the time, even from a very young boy, I was out in the woods at night. Um, you know, to give you an idea, I know that I could never do this now, but back then I didn't have to kill whatever I caught, which a lot of times was coons or foxes. I didn't carry a pistol. I carried a baseball bat because I didn't want to damage the fur of the animal. But when you're raised that way, you know, you just didn't think anything of it. But as it became older and softer, you know, I couldn't hurt anything now. Um, but nonetheless, so that happened. We just kept fishing. We didn't think anything about it. Later that year, Leonard Nimoy had a show called In Search Of in the 70s. I saw an episode one Bigfoot, and it made me wonder, and I was curious. And two more times over the course of the years before I graduated from high school, I had found a track one time with my father in that same general area, and another time a couple miles away when I was squirrel hunting, I found a track in a fresh clear-cut area. So I was always interested in Bigfoot, followed my whole life, went to four years undergrad, and five years of Cairo school, moved to um, here in West Virginia, um, over the years, as my practice grew, I became a certified master naturalist. And for the people that are curious about, a lot of states offer master naturalist programs. Some of them are very average. Some of them are exceptional. West Virginia has one that, you know, it's taught by a college professor. It's every other Friday night. It's three or four hours of lecture by the professor, whoever it happens to be on that specialty. The next morning, you meet for three or four hours in the woods, in a creek, whatever it happens to be to discuss, whatever it is. There's 39 classes. So there's a fern class, there's a snake class, there's a tree class, there's a bird class, there's everything class. And you have to finish it in order to be a certified master naturalist. And so once I finished that, I, you know, I was kind of getting back interested in Bigfoot. And so I saw that there was this Ohio Bigfoot conference, and this is the world's largest conference I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't heard of it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go. It's a couple hours from me. I drove up there. Knew nobody, of course. There's like 300 people there. <laughs> it's interesting, but there was there were some pretty weird people there. you know. And so I'm driving home, and, and my ex is like, well, what did you think? And I'm like, well, I mean, there were some pretty weird people there. And she's like, well, Russ, I don't want to be mean, but like you were in a Bigfoot thing. And I was like, well, that's true. So... Uh, later that year, I Googled Bigfoot. And in those days when you did it, BFRO.net come up, which is the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. And that's a show associated with Finding Bigfoot TV show, the only scientific research group. Really, there's a couple others now, but back then that was the only one that was around. And um, they were having an expedition. So you pay several hundred dollars, you get interviewed, you have to sign these non-disclosure forms. And then about you know, a few weeks before you're going to go, then they tell you the location that you meet. And so I, I thought I'm just going to go. If they're weird, I'll bail. And so I went and back in those days, Matt Moneymaker, which is the lawyer, the one that started the finding big or started the show finding Bigfoot and was also the starter of the BFRO was there. And Matt and I just hit it off. And so that was about 15 years ago. And from that point on, I started doing the group's reports in Ohio and West Virginia. And eight years ago, I wrote a best-selling book called Tracking the Stone Man. And um, ironically, 
as you right before you and I were on, I had finished all the last final changes for the second edition. I've worked on it over 260 hours and sent it to the publisher in this last two weeks. We've been back and forth and back and forth. But today I finally did it all. It's all approved. And the press release goes out Tuesday. And then uh, last year I wrote a book. Uh, It was published in December. It was called The Appalachian Bigfoot. It was number one on Amazon for 17 weeks. And, um, that was the reason why the publisher had went after me to do the second edition. But every time I do one of these, I swear I'm never doing another one because it's just so many hours and, and such a hassle. Jeff, yeah, I don't like, know if you saw it on Twitter, but there was one guy, they were talking about Bigfoot videos or something. And he's like, well, you kind of have to say it. Cause you know, you got to have people buy your book. And, and I thought it was funny. So I added up all the hours that I had in writing this last book and then figured out by the money that I'd made last year and I'd made 20 cents an hour. So I thought I'd better use better use of my time in the future. Yeah. That, that's prisoner wages. Yeah. Or, yeah, or, or North Korean wages. Anyway, yeah. uh, e- either one, not, not below the minimum wage. So yeah, it, this is not a money grab. It's a, it's a passion. labor of love. Yeah. Very good. So, well, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially on Twitter, just don't like math and don't like numbers. It, it doesn't fit into their into their narrative. Anyway, enough about their narrative. Let's stick to your narrative. So, I mean, your story is is not uncommon. I mean, the details are, but the you know, a lot of people I've spoken to are who are invested in the paranormal and become authors and researchers, etc., uh, had some sort of childhood experience that that, mm-hmm. that you know. Touch the you know didn't touch their inner child because they they were already a child, um, but you know but uh, started this lifelong interest and devotion. Obviously, it didn't sidetrack you because you went to chiropractic medicine. You've seen, I mean, over two hundred thousand patients. That's not nothing. Uh, we we know that you're not an old man, or at least I don't think you are because we're around <laughs> the same age. And those people who do think he is, uh, I'm gonna try to avoid the explicit on this one. So you know, screw you. Um, uh, so if, if it slips out, it's okay. I can just put the explicit uh, label on it. So all right. So th- this was the start. You sort of went from you know a, a tweener uh, to somebody who quickly fell into the upper echelons of scientific Bigfoot research. So before we go any further, I mean, this is probably self-evident and it probably sounds like a Adobe question, but what's the difference and how can someone from the outside tell the difference between a scientific methodolog- uh, methodological approach to researching and studying Bigfoot versus everyone else? You know, it's a struggle, isn't it? I mean, so many things, so many different professions, so many fields of interest and hobbies that people have. Bigfoot might be one of the true examples that's being led by citizen scientists. I mean... We have a handful of well-known anthropologists or different types of doctors that are similar to that, PhDs that are interested in the field, maybe PhD wildlife biologists. But by and large, it's mostly people that maybe don't even have that kind of background at all that's doing the research. And the sad thing about that is, you know, and I address this in the second book, The Appalachian Bigfoot, a whole chapter on just trying to motivate people to be more scientific in their approach to look at things from a different perspective. And and unfortunately in Bigfoot, a lot of the Bigfoot world, people are more interested in the experiences and the counter encounters they are. And they really don't care so much about the animal being acknowledged or they're interested in having, they're going out at night and they want to have an experience. I largely don't even go out at night anymore because there's just no evidence to be collected. 
Um, you know, the scientific community isn't compelled by some of the FLIR thermal footage that's out there and that's apparent. Um, some of it's really good, but they're just not compelled. Quite frankly, they're not even that interested in it. So I think that um, there's a lot of groups that are around, you know, if you look at the BFRO, there's Olympic project out in the Pacific Northwest. There's the um, North American Wood Ape Conservancy out of Oklahoma and Texas that by and large, those groups are the groups doing scientific research. And you have some individuals on their own. I don't want to, you know, belabor anybody with the, or belittle anybody with, you know, not including them in that. But I would say that there's a scientific method, a scientific approach to um, how the, we are taking about it. For instance, probably my specialty is um, game cameras. I have over 40 professional game cameras in the woods in West Virginia and Ohio. I methodically keep notes all the time, everything that I do. I spend a lot of time in the woods. I mean, that's another problem. You know, let's say that Bigfoot was acknowledged instantly. The academics and the government officials would come out of the classrooms and their offices would be in some location where a lot of us don't have access to. Maybe it's a watershed that no one's allowed to be in because it's serving Portland, Oregon, or whatever it happens to be, or Walla Walla, Washington. And they would put scientists in there for a long time that were getting paid to be there. And they would have some of the equipment that none of the rest of us can afford. Um, that's one of the good things about the BFRO is you have a lot of professionals in there. There's a lot of different types of doctors that are in there, a lot of medical doctors. Um, I'm the only Cairo that's in there, but there's other types of professionals that have the um, disposable means that we have the expensive thermal cameras on our own. We're able to afford 40 game cameras, you know, and able to, uh, unfortunately be old enough that I take enough time off work that I can manage all this. So I think that, um, you know, a lot of people get interested in Bigfoot, you know, I can't tell you the number of times, like, um, uh, last fall I took a sighting from some guy, um, and then I'd say maybe about a month ago, there was a school counselor that had another sighting and they all get excited and they want to be involved in Bigfoot. And they're like, I'm going to do the show or I'm going to do a YouTube or I'm going to do this or whatever. But the reality is that you never really see anything. Most of the time you're in the woods, hundreds of hours. In fact, there's these two biologists that lived in Oregon named Hukin and Sullivan, and they had a Bigfoot encounter on the job there. And they were very active in and keeping their notes for all these years. And they had this something called the guideline, the Hugh and Sullivan guideline. And it's for every 200 hours in your woods, you will have one type of sighting, brief encounter. You'll find some scat. You'll find a footprint or some evidence or hair sample or whatever it happens to be. And I have found that, you know, that was in the 70s. It's evolved now. We know more now. And I would say that it's probably about half that, maybe about every 100 hours I can encounter something. So for me... That's about every other month. So if you think about it, I'm hiking these hills in West Virginia and doing all my game cam stuff. And the great majority of the time, nothing happens, but it's just time in the woods. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm new to Russ, but you know, once you start following, you see he does spend a lot of time hiking in the woods. Uh, so he's actually there. I am old enough to remember exactly what you remember. Uh, to, I, I'm of the age where Leonard Nimoy was famous to me first for In Search Of, before I realized he was Mr. Spock. For older people, it was the reverse. For younger people, it probably is the reverse, so they never heard of In Search Of. But 
that was probably my first exposure to Bigfoot, including that film that, that is iconic now. Uh, then there was Andre the Giant played Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, rather, in the Six Million Dollar Man show, um, you know, which was, you know, uh, you know, sort of hokey, but when you're 11, nothing's hokey. Um, and, you know, and, and then from there, you know, Sasquatch was a character in, in the uh, X-Men, in the, in the Alpha Flight series, and, and you know, and theories Six about... Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, yeah, Steve, Steve Austin, the original Steve Austin, not Stone yeah. Cold. Um, so, I'm, the point of all this is that I'm long enough to remember when Bigfoot was like, you know, sort of a big ape man. Is it ape? Is it man? Is it a big man? Is it the giant? Is it something like something hominid to more lately, like the last 15 years, like now it's become something supernatural. It's interdimensional. Yes. It's alien. Yeah. It's got cloaking and invisibility devices. Yeah. Portals in and all of a sudden we've attributed something that was, you know, plausible but rare of, you know, some species of hominin either in the homo family or in the ape family that hasn't been categorized as maybe very rare has a survival ability to to hide from man i mean this is not that unusual i mean we thought tasmanian uh tigers were extinct they found one three years ago alive um and i believe there was a, a snow leopard that they thought was extinct and they just found they spotted one alive there was there was a type of a, a jellyfish that they thought was extinct alive new they found new creatures you know, yes. all the time, you know alive all the time this is uh, growing up nothing lived in the antarctic well guess mm. what there is there's the like an insect that lives off the antarctic and somehow gets oxygen and nutrition out of like the oxygen bubbles in in the ice so just to say that's miraculous and extraordinary enough to but to turn it into some sort of interdimensional intergalactic yeah. being is something I don't, I don't subscribe to. And I know you don't either. So I just wanted you to take a second to address yeah. these things. Cause the people are expecting sort of a, a supernatural rather than preternatural being discussed here. This is not the show for you though. Yeah. I'm open to guests who want to talk about that, but uh, you know, that's not this show. Yeah. So in my mind, it, it works something like this, whatever Bigfoot would be, you know, he was in either Africa or Asia. He came across the Bering Land Bridge into North America and then spread chasing game, you know, territory and whatnot. Bering Land Bridge was open 10 to 20,000 years ago. Many people believe that originally that maybe Bigfoot was something called Gigantopithecus. It was the largest ape, eight to 10 foot tall. We have bones, you know, there's fossil evidence of it. There was millions of them that existed. Then lately, some people believe that it's Paranthropus, which came from Africa. It's essentially a Bigfoot and looks like one. And the problem, of course, with that one is that uh, we don't know if it came that far. There's no evidence of bones that it came all the way up through there. How, uh, the problem, how long ago did Paranthropus live, according to you know, traditional science? What, what, so it would be an Australopithecine. So, you know, you're talking about a couple million years ago, but... Most of the Giganto and that kind of stuff were most of the studies show up until around 80 to 100,000 years ago, which is relatively recent. Yeah. You know, the problem with that, uh, the Giganto one is that it looks like it may have been all fours. The dental DNA stuff that they're doing now, the, the studies looks like it's probably was, you know, something that just ate plant life or plant matter, maybe a bamboo eater. So that would have meant that when it came over, it evolved into being an omnivore here. So. Um, that's where Bigfoot would have came from. Now, in about the last two years, we've had this thing called woo, 
and woo is to sound like a ghost, but woo. And mm-hmm. so there is a paranormal aspect that is becoming rampant in Bigfoot. And it's just in the last 10 years, I believe that it's because we've never had a time where people are in the woods so little. They don't know the trees. They don't know the ecology. They don't know the snakes. They don't know what happens there. They don't understand it. They're never there. They're just there. Maybe a couple of the take a vacation and maybe they go there or maybe a few times a year they go camping for a weekend or something. So people don't understand how the way it works and the animals that are there. So you have Bigfoot. If it existed, it would be rare. It would be, you know, if I was going to guess, you know what, maybe four to 8,000 in all of North America, something along those lines, which sounds like a lot. But when you start dividing it out, you know, into provinces and states, you know, choose um, Ohio, you know, or West Virginia, where there would be like 150 to 175, and then you break it down, and then it's like a family group in a county. So you start thinking about a county being 30, 40 miles in each direction, and somewhere along there, there would be something, if the train holds it, that for generationally knows where people go, where people don't go, and occasionally you have sightings that's more off active at night, so people aren't seeing it that much. People kind of stick to the roads largely. I mean, there's a study from Outdoor Life, University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State. Um, they did game trackers on a thousand hunters and found that, you know, all but just a few, as less than one percent, were within a quarter mile of the nearest road or trail. So it's just not common for people to really be out there. I know. I just recently did a radio show for somebody in New Orleans, and they didn't know anything about Bigfoot. We were just talking. You know, that's what they called me for, and. They're like, it just seems like that someone ran into it. I mean, somebody out there or whatever. And I was like, who's out there, man? I mean, I don't even see anybody. You know, there's just, there's nobody in the woods anymore. It's just not that popular. But I don't know beyond that why the proliferation of woo, but it's troubling because there's a lot of young scientists that are very interested in Bigfoot and the proposition that maybe something like Sasquatch could exist. You know, there's evidence of it in other countries almost every country and culture has it the native americans in north america have it going back literally hundreds and hundreds of years newspaper reports going back to the 1850s in the united states and the eastern u.s so there's a long-standing history of it you know in our country yeah not just our country everywhere as you point i mean yeah all all six of the populated continents have stories of, of something that is, is not exactly like a Bigfoot or, you know, probably yeah. is a variation or a species if that's... Yeah, some know, type of something similar. Year and Yeti, Yowie, the uh, Orange Ape Man in, in South America, um, obviously our Bigfoot. I'm sure there's a there's a million different names. I, I've had people from, uh, with African lore talking about that and Asia talking about it. Even in India, they, they have, have their version as well. So... Certainly no surprise. So, listen, I have nothing against Wu. I just don't think that Bigfoot is part of the Wu universe. Uh, again, I'm willing to listen to it, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm more thinking it's it's something from our anthropological past, probably in the in, in the human chain or at least somewhere close to wherever our, co- you know, related to our common ancestor with the chimps from, you know, around 7 million years ago when apparently we split off our... Yeah, it has to be after we split off, you know, to be for the bipedalism. But, you know, when Homo erectus had tool use, of course, so it would be, you know, something aside from that. So, you know, or it could be something we don't even know yet. I mean, if you think originally, like maybe even 10 years ago, the argument was that, you know, anthropologists always considered there could only be 
one animal occupying each space. And, you know, we thought that, you know, Homo killed out this, which killed out that. And it was this long chime. But now we know that it's just not like that at all. They just all existed in like kind of a bush. They were all there at the same time. They were interbreeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually Homo outbred them all, you know, or killed them all or whatever it happened to do. So we're intermarried. uh, Yeah. Or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, I mean, it's changed a lot. And so that's not really the argument anymore. There's really not an argument anymore. The argument that I hear, I done one TV show with an anthropologist that didn't believe or not a TV show, but a podcast. And, um, there, they would say that there's not any evidence, but frankly, they just really don't even address the, the, uh, evidence. They're just not interested. Yeah. And, and, and leaving Bigfoot a little bit, but still on the subject in the last 20 years, they've discovered at least five different variations of homo of you know of of something that is would be homo sapien but not homo sapien sapien modern man whether it's denisovan whether it's the homo floriensis homo nalati uh in in south africa was discovered so and they've uh, you know even about three or four years ago the, the scientific community believed that there was neanderthal dna uh, in in Europeans and Asians, especially Eurasians, but not in Africa. Now, it, just a few years later, no, Africans have about four percent of Neanderthal DNA as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now with the discovery of Denisovans, we're finding out just how many people have D- Denisovan. Uh, I'm not sure yes. if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I've heard it pronounced six different ways. <laughs> um, uh, you know, DNA and that, and, and this is going to continue as we find more evidence. We dig deeper, we get lucky. Uh, Dragon Man in China still hasn't quite been identified. That's, you know, if you believe in giants, you think it's a giant. If you believe in uh, Nephilim, you think it's a Nephilim. If you think it's mm-hmm. a, a Bigfoot, you think it might be, it, it could be a, a Bigfoot. I mean, you know, we don't know what it is uh, at, at this point. They haven't been able to sequence it. It's, uh, I think it's just a skull. Um, anyway, the, 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 the point of that is, is that science has changed so much just in, in 20 years. In fact, in material ways, in the last three or four years, um, yes. that to rule this out in, entirely it's, it's probably a little bit silly. Um, and it, I, I saw an article on scientists come out with a new explanation for Bigfoots. And this was posted, it was either science.com or smithsonian.com. And I took the time to read it. And it was nothing new. It's the, it's the same thing they've been saying for, for years, that it's black bears standing up. Now, I've seen black yeah. bears. Uh, yeah. Not in the wild. But I've seen, but my uh, fiance has taken a photo of one uh, and nearby, and I've seen them in the zoo and things like that. And yeah, black bear's a big animal; it's scary. I don't want to, I don't want to run into a black bear. But it's basically like a big Saint Bernard, and standing up, it would not be seven or eight feet tall. Uh, a grizzly bear, maybe, but that's not what they're mm-hmm. saying. They're saying black bears, and let's. People know what a grizzly bear standing up looks like. Because we all watch Grizzly Adams, and we've all seen we're going to see Cocaine Bear when it comes out in two months, <laughs> and we've all seen mm-hmm. bears standing up in commercials and movies and whatever. They don't look like people. Uh, Paradoxia be damned. It, it, you know, you, that that's something that we're familiar enough with that we're not going to transmute that into a a person or something like a Harry and the Hendersons type of you know a, a Bigfoot creature. So. Without further intentional meanderings from me, uh, I'm going to let you pick it up where you left off. 
So, uh, I mean, just last year, you know, best-selling book about uh, Homo Florensis, you know, the, I forget, I was looking at my bookshelf. I read so much that I don't see it over here. I don't remember the anthropologist's name that wrote it, but there's still reports and he believes that in all likelihood there might still be some over there. Could I be. Mean, so, yeah, who's to say, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's dangerous to sweep broad swoops saying that certain things can't be or won't be. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when you just consider the evidence for Bigfoot, you know, like probably the most compelling or the convincing thing is the footprints, the, the casts that come out. You know, there's hundreds of them been found. There's specialists that are anthropologists, PhDs that uh, like Jeff Meldrum at um, Idaho State University, which is a PhD and is, uh, an expert in primate uh, mobility and functional anatomy. You know, you look at some of the footprint casts and you take, you know, what do you, what do you say if you take the best 100 that are you know, and I did, they show functional anatomy. They show motion inside the joint. It's clearly not some type of fake. You know, when you consider all those things, you consider, you know, there's around 60,000 Bigfoot reports. It's estimated that about one in every 20 get reported. So there's 60,000 that have been reported. You take the top couple hundred of those and you're left with um, four strangers you know, just taking the very best sightings. Um, you know, I think about like Action Jackson. Do you know who I'm talking about when I say that? The Carl Weathers he, movie? <laughs> he was the renowned forest ranger from Yosemite uh, that, or Yellowstone that just retired. He was in charge of the Yellowstone backcountry, the back, the, the most expansive remote area in the United States. And that's where he made his living riding a horse, protecting that country from those people. He just retired in the last year. And he's said that uh, he saw the Bigfoot when he was there. You know, so if Action Jackson, the ranger that did all that for years in the daytime, had a sighting, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pretty confident that he knows what a Bigfoot or a bear or whatever it happens to be looks like. Agree. So there's other reports like that. And I'm telling you, there's literally hundreds and hundreds that are exceptional reports. You know, um, I remember one doctor was head of the, I remember now if it was the UCLA or the USC Medical School had watched one for 20 minutes when he was hunting wild boar. And I mean, there's all kinds of story after story after story. And, and I remember when I started doing this, I mean, I knew something happened. I thought that there might be something, but I wasn't sure. And the very first report I took was from the state trooper in West Virginia. And he was riding his four wheeler with his wife on the back and they were riding on a right of way. And we have a lot of those in West Virginia because of our coal fired power plants And a lot of animals use them. You know, they create edges for game. Different types of uh, plant life will be there than they're found in other areas. And they're long, straight distances. They tend to not be around houses and whatnot. So things use them for travel. So he's doing that. Him and his wife like to hunt ginseng. And it's in the summer, but they're out looking for places they might look in the fall when ginseng, you know, you're allowed to hunt it. And he said he pulled off this right away and he glanced up and he thought he saw a fire burn stump. And he kept putting along and he glanced up again and he paused and he asked me, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, they're so large. You can't imagine. Think sheet of plywood. And he's like, people disappear. I'm not saying it's them. They're just so big. You can't imagine. He said, I'm trying to hit reverse to put my four wheel in reverse. My wife said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, look, 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 look. And of course he's wearing a pistol and she looks and she screams, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And they get tearing out of there. 
you know, she gets counseling for post-traumatic stress. They move from the country into the city, still saying that if she hears something outside the house, then, you know, she thinks a Bigfoot just came into the town or something. I went out there with another investigator and took him and another state trooper out there, both of them chain smoking, holding their guns out the whole time. And the guy just crying and shaking. Hmm. And I thought this dude saw something, you know, there's, you know, clearly something has shaken this man. You know, I went on uh, another interview, a man that worked retired from NASA. He was the youngest sheriff in the history of Florida retires to West Virginia He's just putting around with a family friend that's a logger just for the ride, just to have something to do. And they're driving along a gravel road and they look across a creek. And after a minute, he stops the, the guy stopped the truck and he said, did you see what I saw? And he said, yeah. He said, there was a Bigfoot that was knelt down on one knee drinking water with its hands. And he said, yeah, you know, that's exactly what I saw. You know, and that's, I have hundreds and hundreds of those stories just in West Virginia that are people that'll be. Um, they'll call me and say, one gentleman called me and he said, you know, he told me his name and he said, you can Google me. I was a police commissioner and I was the mayor of this town. I want you to know that you can take me seriously, but I don't want you to use my name and I don't want you to tell people who I am. But he said, I just am saying this so you'll take me seriously. But he said, this is what I saw and I'm not mistaken. Right. It's tough when you hit, when you promise to keep confidentiality, like a journalist would, um, and you know. Yeah, you know, and you're dying to establish the credibility of your your witness, but you you really can't. But um, obviously, you've heard a lot of them, and and you sort of tried to take the you know the the chaff from the the non chaff, the the boys from the men, so to speak, um, and done a pretty good even job doing a lie detector test sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah, back when I was doing originally, when I started taking reports, the very best ones. I would include different types of tactics like that, you know, trying to accumulate the very best ones. You know, I recognize that, you know, when you talk to a lawyer or a judge or a police officer, they'll say, well, you know, witness testimony is, you know, it's terribly unreliable. It's renownedly unreliable. But I think that the thing that we need to look at is setting aside the Native American culture and those type of things that go back, you know, talking about Bigfoot for hundreds and hundreds of years, that there's certain things that people are good at. So people are not good at guessing height or weight or how far away something is. They're really not good at that at all. I found, but the standard for knowing whether something is a human or not a human isn't very high. Like I think most people, even people that have never been in the woods, you know, if they saw a Bigfoot, they'd say, well, that's not a human. Right. And so we have to attach some weight to that, Native American lore, Native American culture, going back hundreds of years, some weight to the, you know, throw out the half of the uh, Bigfoot things and say they were a bear, a misidentification, or somebody slipped and filled their head, or they're insane, or whatever it happens to be, and just keep the 1,000 very best ones, or the 500 best ones that are, leave everybody shaking their head saying, this is real, there's just no question about it. You know, you just put those things on there. If we were in a court of law, they would find that it's real. But, you know, we're talking about an undocumented species, so the standard is much higher, rightfully so. But unfortunately, we just don't have participation from the scientific community, you know, like uh, like we would love to have. Well, I can tell you as a lawyer that while what you said is absolutely true, you're also going to find very few prosecutors who are going to prosecute a case 
without witnesses. Um, so yeah. it, you know, that cuts both ways. You want the witnesses? Sure. Are people unreliable? Are, are you know, can an expert sort of, sh- sh- you know, show where people have the weaknesses uh, or failings, uh, you know, which are not their fault, some of which you just exposed. I mean, there's all sorts of studies on what we have problems distinguishing and, and, and you noted some of them. But yeah, I, I think you're right. The difference between human and non-human, whether they interpreted it as a troll or an ogre or a werewolf or a Bigfoot, you know, may, may be a distinction. But, uh, you know, but, you know, uh, they confusing a bear, you know, or, a, you know, a puma in a tree or something for a Bigfoot that doesn't seem likely to make. Um, yeah, it's not so reasonable. Yeah. Except maybe yeah. someone just absolutely panic. But as you said, you, you can tell the difference between sort of trained observers, people who are taught to not yes. panic under pressure, yes. You know, woodsmen, outdoors people, hunters, yes. and and again the Native American lore, the and not just Native American lore, the the you know the indigenous peoples, the hunter gatherers of every country, they encountered other animals. You know, they you know they had to you know oftentimes they had to fight or share their prey with the hyena, the wolves, their jackals, or they had to wait for the bigger animals to to finish and and you know be carrion and be scavengers, whatever it was. They they knew what a dire wolf was. They knew where the li- what a lion was, you know. So uh, enough of me for the moment. I, I what I'd love to hear from you is obviously you've categorized some credible um, encounters, and you've already mentioned a few. What are some of like your top five besides the ones you've said of credible encounters? Like which stories got a hold of your imagination? And then you investigate and you said, yeah, th- this seems like it's something. So. I usually choose recent ones because I've done hundreds of them. And, you know, in both books, I put a lot of the reports that aren't even in the public domain out there for people to read. So, you know, they can find those in the books. And But one or two that's not in the books that I would think about most recently was the school counselor from southern West Virginia. You know, it's a gentleman that, I mean, if, for the people that haven't been in southern West Virginia in the coal fields, when you drive there, you're humbled by how steep the terrain is. You look at the trees and you wonder, how can they even stand? I mean, they're so, it's just unbelievable. But a lot of the people in that country are outdoorsmen. It's really common. And, you know, if 20% of the people in the country believe in Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest or in Appalachia, the number is probably well over 50%. Almost everybody has a story or knows someone that has a story because everybody's out in the outdoors so much. But this gentleman every year, you know, we only have a, a, a ginseng season that lasts a short period of time. So if someone would dig a couple thousand dollars worth of ginseng, that would be pretty normal. If you're digging 10,000, you're really in the woods a lot, right. but for somebody that would find 10 or 12,000 in a weekend, that person would be exceptional. And that's the way this gentleman was. He was looking on maps and finding places where other people wouldn't go. And so he took his stepson. They walked four hours to get to a place where, you know, he believed that there would be some ginseng. And of course it has to be largely a lot of times it's older, big forest because it likes this dark gloomy area that's moist in order to grow the very best. And so when they walked out there, they were in an area that had been clear cut a little bit. And so then he got into this, he said, we're just dropping into this big dark hollow. He said, as soon as we started to drop in, He's like, I thought I heard somebody laughing at us. And he said, we just paused. And he said, then I kind of heard it again. Like it was laughing at us. And he's like, we didn't see anything. We didn't know what it was. And 
he said, so we kind of drop over the hillside. So we're going into this hollow. And he said, then he said, I could see something moving down there. And so he's watching and he said, you know, I can see it's something that's dark and it's upright. It's tall. It's around seven feet tall. He said, it's standing behind a tree. And you hear that all the time. I mean, the patience that these animals have is amazing. Like they will not move unless they've been seen. They're always behind something. And a lot of times they'll stand still or sit still for long moments, 20 minutes, 30 minutes without even moving. You know, that's just inbred apparently in them, just part of who they are. But, you know, he saw this and it started making noises and it started, he could see it breaking trees and it would pull the trees down. And his uh, stepson was 13. He was getting really afraid, but he's like, it's okay, bud. He's okay. You know, and he had a pistol on him. So he said that, you know, as far enough away that the way he could see it, he thought that, you know, it was probably okay. Well, they saw it kind of walk off and walk up this hill. And so he told his stepson, he's like, I want to go down here. I want to look at this area where it was. And he said he went down there and, you know, he could see other trees that had been knocked down over the course of time that he believed were probably from the same animal. But then he looked up the hill and he could see that it was up there against a tree stump. He could just make it out. Mm. And then he saw it started rolling rocks down the hill and started moving around more. So they left and went out of there. They were nervous. You can imagine uh, seeing or hearing something like that and having to a four-hour walk back out and part of it being in the dark, you know, when something's out there like that. But he's another one of those people, you know, he's ate up with Bigfoot. He's interested in it now that it happened. But he would send me maps and say, you know, look at this place. It's a six-hour walk. Nobody can get there. All these hollows come together from these different counties. It's a perfect Bigfoot spot. And I'd tell him, you know, listen, man, there's a lot more perfect Bigfoot spots than there are of the animal. It's a rare animal. And that's what people discount so much is the rarity of it. That's why there's not that many sightings. That's why it's so hard. Um, you know, with the game cameras, for instance, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, there's a lot of studies. The Chinese had a big study because they have some undocumented species in their rainforests over there. So they tested all the American, um, game cameras, their best camera is the reconics camera. And they're between four and 600 bucks right now. And even them are about 20 decibels, but the cheaper cameras are 30 decibels. A lot of times children can hear them. Mm. And the university of Georgia had said that, you know, they will notice they don't get alpha male coyotes on their game cameras. So a lot of the animals are leery of game cameras and must certainly must hear them and avoid them. So I think that that's probably part of the problem. So that means that we're left trying to set them up where there's a Creek or some kind of noise covering the sound of our cameras. And, you know, you're talking about, the odds of something that there may be a family group in a county in a spot that's a likely area, you know, a good place. And you're trying to get something to walk within 50 feet of that camera that it can probably hear, you know, so not that likely. Well, yeah. I mean, but animals have stronger senses than, than we do. I mean, dogs, what was there? They can smell like 20 million times better than we can or 60 million. It's some, it's some, exponentially it's unimaginable it's so loud but they can also hear in different i mean dog whistle that's what dog whistle means it means dogs can hear a certain tone that we can't hear and and dogs sense of smell is their major smell you know cats and other animals have you know you know more more for their hearing so you know who who knows what this creature has evolved and different species have probably evolved different things for their uh, their environments over time just just like uh, every other animal has i have a few quick fire questions for you just to get some things out of the way that i'm curious okay. about do 
Bigfoots have reflective eyes. You know how you shine a light on, on like a wolf or a dog or a cat and it reflects back? Uh, th- th- does that happen with a Bigfoot as well? No. So, um, you know, what we're talking about is eye shine that you see reflection. Of course, yeah. almost everything do. But in the back of the eye, we have a, a structure called tapedum lucidum, which allows, uh, you know, things that want to see at night, you know, it magnifies that light coming in so it can see better. So certainly, you know, the woo crowd would tell you that they glow, you know, and we do have some, uh, I think it was a lemur or something that there's some evidence that it was actually having its eyes that do produce some type of light. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I haven't seen anything to evidence, you know, to suggest otherwise, but, um, so did I answer that question? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> the answer is no. Um, okay. Do they hibernate? I don't think so. I mean, uh, most of the bears that we have in this part of the country are, you know, torpor, which means that they kind of go in and out depending upon the weather. Um, you know, you have elk and moose and whatnot that live through the winters. And I don't see any reason why, you know, a smart primate that probably would be our closest relative if it's to exist, wouldn't find any problems with, um, you know, getting by in the winter. I mean, ironically in West Virginia, because it's so steep, you can drop a couple thousand feet quickly to get to a warmer place. If it's a cold winter storm, you know, or you can find one of the 10,000 mine shafts in West Virginia that are abandoned that no one knows that are just up on the mountainsides in different places or caves or whatever it happens to be. But I mean, some of the reports we take, some of the very best ones are in the winter at the high elevation. So it seems like it just probably doesn't matter to us. But um, so, no, I don't believe that they hibernate. Okay. And is there any evidence that they use tools? Tools meaning anything as as basic as using sticks to find grubs or worms or insects to something, you know, that, you know, clubs, uh, flint, you know, hatchets, whatever, you know, and any, any, anything that would count as a stone age or wood age tool. The stone age really was more wood age. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting how, you know, our standards of this have kind of evolved and changed too. You know, recently we've seen the chimps using things to fish with and sticks and different stuff, but I know one time um, in the mountains of West Virginia, I found a large rock about the size of maybe a desk that uh, was underneath a tree that was a beech tree loaded with nuts. And something had been crushing the nuts with a big flat rock on the larger rock. Yep. So I know I put a picture of that in one of the books and said, you know, what, what do you know in nature in remote areas where no humans go is crushing beech nuts on a rock? So I don't think that they... Um, I, I don't think that they use tools in the sense, you know, that like early homo did or something like that. But, you know, I mean, we hear examples of them clock clacking rocks and some people believe that they throw rocks to kill things or whatever that happens to be. I mean, that doesn't seem really unreasonable to me. So, you know, there's you some rudimentary a, evidence or to use a rock to open a, a nut or a shell or something where they don't want to use their hands or they, can. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, or a muscle. They use uh, freshwater mussels. You know, they eat those a lot. I found a Bigfoot track one time in Ohio around a uh, lake in the winter where it was after mussels. Oh, that's great. Uh, I would consider that tool usage. I mean, it's rudimentary, okay. and 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 there are, as you said, I think was it muskrats or beavers or something. You use. Uh, I'm sure plenty of animals do. I mean, uh, so but it, rudimentary tool use, but not much to glean from that. Okay, I basically I, I had asked you to give some of the sort of the best, most credible stories, and and you told one, and then I took you in a whole yes. different direction. So uh, let's let's you turn and go right back to where we were, because I'm sure you had some other ones with some you know uh, credible folks that you rely upon and probably put in your book as well. But you know, yeah, you know, I took this one from this lady 
not long ago, just several months ago, and it was from uh, East Tennessee Cherokee National Forest. Mm-hmm. And um, she was a high school senior. And after her and her friends are graduating, they're getting ready to leave for college. And so her and her friends, it was two girls, and then a group of people were coming up the next day. And so they checked in the ranger station and went up. And then to walk to the campsite was about a 15-minute walk. And so the girls, when they uh, walked into the campsite, they heard this loud bang. And, of course, you know, one of the noises that a Bigfoot makes is a wood knock is what it's called. But we don't know. Some of the apes in Africa, orangutans, mountain gorillas, some will hand clap. Some will mouth pop. And, you know, they're large animals with large hands, large mouths. So you can be pretty loud, I'm sure, because, you know, you've heard people do that same thing. And, of course, then there's reports of them actually, someone seeing them actually uh, hit a tree or something to make that noise. But nonetheless, the girls heard that noise and called out, hey, is someone there? They just thought someone was in the woods or whatever and didn't hear anything. And they were carrying stuff and going back and forth. And when they got done, they talked that they each time one of them came back in there, they had heard that noise. And they fixed dinner and had a good night's sleep and nothing happened. The next day, it was about an hour and a half walk to a set of waterfalls. So the girls... Uh, were being girls and having fun and talking the whole way there. And they ate and, um, you know, came back. And they were about a half hour from being back. And one of the girls, her watch band, had lost the pen. And so the girl that was the witness told me, she said, you know, this is really the first time we've been quiet the whole time because we were laughing and talking, but we were looking for that pen and we were quiet. And she said, we heard something laughing. And... The trail they were on was surrounded by rhododendron, so it's very thick. It's hard to see, but there was a little creek that was about, you know, maybe 50 yards away from them, and there was just a deer trail that kind of meanders over to it. But one of the girls thought that it was the people that came early were trying to, you know, surprise them or scare them or whatever it happens to be. So they heard that kind of laughing sound again. So the girl went creeping through there. They were both, you know, hand in hand, and they got over there where they could see the creek and they could see something was there, but they just really couldn't see what it was. And they were still assuming it was their friends. And so she went over there and she stepped through. And when they stepped through, they said it was just like something exploded. Things went everywhere and they couldn't really see that much. But standing right in front of them, not 10 feet away, was this enormous Bigfoot creature in the creek in a half crouch position, holding so still. She said, we didn't even know if it was real. And she said that crouching, it was about six foot tall, but it was much larger than that if it was stood upright. So they were standing there looking at it, and then they started hearing a clacking sound, like something banging rocks together. And they looked over there, and they couldn't see anything. But when they looked back, then the creature was bent back, almost like in a matrix-like position backwards. And it took the back of its hand and thrust it toward the girls, saying, Mwah! And then it started walking backwards, and she said it was very creepy that walked backwards, putting one foot behind the other one, almost gripping the ground while it walks. And, of course, Bigfoot researchers would know that's because they have a two-part foot, a medtarsal break that you know allows that type of thing to happen. And right before it entered in the woods, once again with its palm against its chest, throwing its hand out in them. And as soon as it stepped into the woods, it was just like the woods exploded. Trees were cracking. Trees were breaking. The girls put their hands over their heads. And they thought that, you know, things were getting ready to fall on them. But it gradually it just disappeared and the sound went away as these animals were moving away. You know, apparently there was other ones over there the whole time. 
Well, I have so, a bunch of questions tied to that. I want to ask them all so I don't forget them. Okay. Um, did first of all explain more about that that metatarsal or whatever the word you use break? Yeah. Is that what allows them to climb, sort of like monkeys? And that that signal that you know the the reverse bridge and then the wah and with the hand gesture off the chest. Do you think that was a I mean you no harm or go away, you've been warned, or, or what do you interpret the that as? Um, you can take them in whichever order you like. Okay, so um, Bigfoot's feet look human-like on appearance. You know, the toes are all straight in the same direction. Um, but in the bottom of it... Sorry, somebody was ringing me in here. It's okay. In the bottom of it, of uh, the foot, it goes across. There's a break in the metatarsals. And so it allows the foot to be flexed. And so a lot of times in footprints, you'll actually see that part. Whereas humans have arch, Bigfoot doesn't have any type of arch. And so when we look at the footprints, a lot of times we can see that. We can see at the base of the toes many times where they individually are in different positions or where they'll push off. And that's one of the ways, you know, that we can recognize the type of structure. Also, the tibia and the fibula, you know, the shin bone or the bone on the side of the foot for people that aren't, you know, medically inclined set forward on the foot than what you would expect to see on a human type creature. And it would have to be that anatomically just to accommodate the larger size and structure. So does that, um, so basically the, the, the meat of the foot can bend. It can, it, yes. it can flex. So yes, I mean, assume that that's useful in a lot of ways, including Climbing and, and yeah, um, well, not necessarily climbing trees, so to speak, but probably like the terrain that they're on a lot of times allows greater contact. You know, there's a little like when you and I walk, you know, we have a little straddle in our walk. There's a left foot, and right foot. Mm -hmm. They have a tiny amount of straddle, but largely they almost tight line is what we call it. It's almost a straight line. You know, it's because they're large, but they're following game trails and many of the forest or whatever it happens to be. And the feet are large, you know, and they're padded really heavily on the bottom. Of course, there's, you know, in terms of other, before we move on, you know, let's just talk about, you know, generally what they look like, yeah. you know, so generally they're reddish brown or dark colored, but they're kind of like a coyote. It's common to hear, you know, blondish or grayish colors, things like that. There's hair everywhere with the exception of their hands on the, the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet. There is very little hair on the face in most cases. Um, they have longer hair, wispy-like, on the forearms coming off. Um, you can see, like, wrinkles around the face or the eyes uh, very commonly like that. Sure. Uh, the eyes are, you know, much larger than our eyes because, of course, you know, they're at one average much larger than we are. I mean, one of the interesting things that I think not to go off so I don't forget about going back to that story, but, um, you know, Bergman's rule in biology or ecology is that animals that are farther from the equator tend to be larger. So a deer that's in Florida is larger than a deer in Canada, and it's all about warmth and creating surface area. And so the tracks, as we have them now, of course, you know, we don't have that many to be able to um, say for sure, but there's not enough data. But it suggests since the 70s that the tracks follow the same way, it's the same um, rule. The tracks that we found in Canada are larger on average than the ones that are found down south in the United States on average. 
you know, and this type of thing is consistent with what you would expect to see with a real creature as opposed to something that's not, hmm. you know, so it's hard to imagine people that are hoaxing tracks. I mean, some of the tracks are found in insanely, you know, like they're found eight mile walk in in Sierra Nevada with uh, wilderness area, you know, it's imagine hard to imagine somebody being in there making Bigfoot tracks, um, you know, places that normally you wouldn't expect to be, see a human. And of course I always tell people, you know, well, I'm, I'm there. So someone else could be there as well. You know, of course the odds are not likely in some cases, but you know, then if you find a footprint and you start looking at it and it has all those things that you and I are talking about, and then the comparatively on the anatomy that say on average, the average Bigfoot footprint is 14 inches long, you know, that I think it's compelling that, um, you know, that the hookers, there would be enough hoaxers, um, I know that one, uh, Dr. Grover Krantz, which was an anthropologist at Washington State University, which wrote a couple of Bigfoot books, he um, talked about that it would take about 1,000 hoaxers in the course of a year in order for them to reproduce all the footprints that have been reproduced. And not only that, then you have to make sure that, I mean, if they're just a wooden foot thing stomping in the ground like the guy out west used to do, the faked tracks, his name was Ray Crow. I mean, everybody can kind of see that that looks silly, you know what I mean? Versus, you know, you see a footprint in the mud and one toe is going one way and another one's going another way. And you stand beside it and you can't get your weight to drop in at all, but you know, it's weight does. And, um, then you measure it relative to the size and it matches up with other things. But nonetheless, so back to the story, um, the girl asked the other girl, she said, what was it? What was it? And, so the one girl walked over and there was like a rock overhang right there in the creek. And she noticed that there was a bunch of dead crawdads laying on top of it. And she said, we disturbed them. And so the girls had that 30 minute walk back. And the girl that was telling me the story, she's like, I mean, the whole time she's crying, Jeff, I mean, she's sobbing. I mean, she hasn't told the story, but one or two other times in her whole life. And it happened when she was 18, I'm talking to her and you know, she's in her forties. Oh, and she, um, she said, I, she, I could tell that her friend wasn't doing well. She's like, she's having trouble breathing. She threw up. She's like, we had both peed when it happened in our pants. And she's like, I can tell my friends ready to have a panic attack. And so she said, we got back to the camp and she said, I thought we would just say, but she's like, you got to get me the F out of here. She's like now. And so she's like, I got all my stuff. And so they just carried as much as they could one trip as they went and left and when they got to the bottom, the ranger station was there. And and she said, well, we had to tell the rangers. And so before she could say anything, the other friend had just ran in. And, she, and when she went in behind her, she's like, she just sounded disturbed. She's just like monster. And, you know, she didn't know what it was. She's like, it's a monster and this and that and whatever. And the ranger's just staring at her. And he says, you know, we don't have any type of old vagrants or anything like that living in the woods. You saw a bear. And the girl that is relating the story to me, she said, it's so silly to listen to him say it was just so preposterous. And so the other girl just ran out. So she told the the ranger that, you know, that they were leaving or whatever. And of course, we, there are no cell phones back then. And so she uh, drops her friend's off, friend off, never sees her friend again. Um, the next day, the, some of the men that were coming to stay with them went to the area phone and called him from the phone booth and said, are you guys okay? And she's like, why? And she's like, he's, he said, when we got there, the camp was tore up. They had, you remember the Coleman metal um, tables that kind of latched together in a big silver square. Yes, I do. 
and it was still latched, but it was completely twisted and every other thing was broken. And so he brought it to her and she said that she went to just an area grocery store and threw it all in the dumpster because she was so troubled. And not many, uh, not very many months later, the other girl committed suicide. Oh, it's terrible. Yes. It's very terrible, traumatic. And so that girl lived her life and she was pretty successful. She raised children. She moved to another city. She was in Philadelphia at the airport and she ran into that, uh, girl's brother. And as soon as I hadn't seen him since childhood, and as soon as he saw her, he walked up to her and said, what happened to you guys that day? She was never the same after that. Just triggered. Just like the, he just thought the family thought that, uh, because she wouldn't talk about that, maybe they'd been raped or, you know, something along those lines. And so she said, I just started sobbing and trying to tell him the story of what happened. And she said, he just looked at me and said, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to tell my parents? Yeah. And so, um, she told me the story. I wrote the story up and sent it to her and she's supposed to come on my podcast here in the next few weeks. You know, I'm not sure whether she'll be able to do it or not, but you know, she seems better now that she's told the story and read the story, you know, and maybe with some time and distance to become comfortable with it. But I told the story because it was a terrifying story. It made me think about how I would handle myself being in the woods like I am and something like that happened. And would I have had, would I have handled it any better than she did? And I can tell you the next day I was in the woods and I was a little punchy when I'm walking, I was paying more attention than what I normally would be paying attention when I was in the woods. But that's just a story from a normal person. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, we have hundreds that are from, you know, lawyers, doctors, all the other stuff. And, you know, that are outdoorsmen as well and rangers and that type of thing. But you know, sometimes like even here in West Virginia, some of the witnesses I may have may have an accent and they sound a little funny, but they're woodsmen their whole life. So maybe they hunt bears and that's what they do. So when they tell you that they saw something that was not a bear, you know, it's compelling and believable. And once again, it needs to be taken with a little weight. You know what I mean? You can't just discount it because it's witness testimony. Are there any from say like, you know, like, uh, army rangers or navy seals or anything like that because i mean you think that you know they, they've been under high pressure they're trained observers they're patient observers in a lot of cases a lot of waiting while you know active waiting um you know i, I would imagine that you know some law enforcement is different than than others you know but, but maybe swat or, or whatnot you know do we have testimony for people like that I mean, listen, I love doctors and lawyers. I'm in the unquote air quote <laughs> professional class, but I'm not sure that, that my testimony of anything I see in the woods is worth a darn. I would I would trust your woodsman who's lived there their entire life. Yeah. You know, you know, assuming nothing like tragic happened where they needed to make a money grab. And I'm not sure you can get a money grab now. There's there's easier and later yeah. ways to find money yeah. now by just saying, Are you sure the government meant that? I mean, you know, you, you, yeah. you know Big, big. I mean, what is the advantage of that? You know, Jeff, why do witnesses come to me? And they're not all like this, but many are that are prominent, respected people that own businesses or whatever it is. And will come to me and tell me a Bigfoot story with the understanding that they can't, they don't want me to tell anyone right. who they are. You know, they have the ability, they could be on finding a Bigfoot TV show if they want to. And, and people kind of know them and stuff or tell their story, but they don't want to. Yeah. So why would you? You know, like if, you know, why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. If it wasn't true. You want to embarrass I mean, yourself. You want to talk to somebody about your experience. Yeah. I mean, there could be a certain percentage are 
disturbed or mentally ill, but I mean, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's hoaxes. I mean, I've found many, many hoaxes myself over the years, people talking to me. I mean, probably in the last month, there was one or two that I didn't believe, you know, I talk to witnesses each week. Um, you know, you're just nice and tell them that you'll include it in your research and you appreciate their time or whatever. But, um, you know, just like anything else, I'm sure that with lawyers or certain types of people, you know, when you're getting a jury or something, you want in there and it's the same way with witnesses. There are certain things that we're looking for and we want in a witness. Some are historical things like, you know, there was a medical doctor from Ocala, Florida that he was 70 and he had a Bigfoot encounter and he wanted me to know, you know, he thought about his whole life. So him and his dad, if you got time for another story, sure. <clears throat> him and his dad are, you know, he's a young man, he's in his teens and uh, every year they would go up to hunt near the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. And it was a tradition of theirs. And there was a little cabin they stayed in and a pasture and an orchard there. And so uh, he said that when they went out, they really didn't notice anything that seemed unusual. They did notice that all the cattle were in one part of the field, but they didn't think much of it. So they were walking over to where they were getting ready to go into where the orchard was. And his father said, squat down. And so he said, I see something up there. I think it's a bear up in the corner of that field. And so he, his dad looked through his scope and he said, it looked like for a long time, he said it was probably a minute he was looking through that scope. And then his dad said, look through up there and tell me what you see. And so he looked up there and he said, what I saw looked like a kindly old black gentleman that was up in the corner of the gate looking down at us. And they both looked up and watched it for several minutes and then it disappeared and he said, my dad said, come on, let's go back to the cabin. So they went back to the cabin. He said, you know, his dad was a man's kind of man, a big hunter and all this. And he says, the only time in his life he ever saw his father afraid. And he said, for the next day, they both kept their guns loaded even in there. And any time that they had to go to the outhouse, his dad would stand on the porch with a loaded gun to make sure everything was okay. And so, you know, his dad had asked him, tell me everything that you remember about it and what you, you know, you saw. And he told him the you know description I gave you. And he said, that's exactly what I saw. And he said, son, this is a secret to be kept between you and I, and let's not share it. You know, and that's the end of it. And so he didn't tell the, the story until after his father had passed away. Well, that's so, you know, hear things like that, that stick with people. Like I remember there was a blacksmith here in West Virginia. I have a picture of his drawing in the book. And I asked him if he would draw me a picture. He said he did sketch of it. And I said, well, can you send me a copy? And he's like, sure. And he sent me one. I was like, I'll get it back to you. And he said, nah, I have hundreds. So, it's something that sticks with these people, you know, that they, they aren't able to get past it. That's like me, you know, being a woodsman my whole life and growing up around that. I have a farm in Ohio that I bought largely because it adjoins a park where there's Bigfoot sightings. Right. I practice in an area because I knew I'd be able to have land and be able to go to the woods quickly. You know, it's some of us has shaped our life in terms of, you know, the need to figure out what it was, you know, that we have ran into and it's, you know, I believe, I think it's romantic in nature. I like to believe that there's still things out there for man to discover, you know, and I just want us to go about it a certain way to take the subject seriously, to approach it from a scientific manner. Um, well, you're an Appalachian uh, a real estate mogul as well, then, <laughs> as, as it turns out. Um, I have a, a few, well, call them parting questions, I think, because you never know. Okay. Um, and again, I'll ask them so they don't forget them. What what do you think a Bigfoot 
is and all are all the cognates the same animal, just different species, Yeti, Yir, and Yowie, Bigfoot, Sasquatch. What are your thoughts on the 1967 film, which you know got debunked, gets rebunked, gets debunked, and then and mm-hmm. it's had a, a renaissance? Uh, and what is this is part of a two part question. What do you think the best portrayal of a Bigfoot is in you know pop culture, the media, and what's your favorite? Because those may be different things. Hmm. So everybody talks about the Patterson Giblin film, and so, that was the one in 1967, the one that everybody has seen, probably one of the most iconic pieces of film in us history. Everybody knows that Bigfoot's walking along, turns around and looks at the camera. It was two guys that went out there that were interested in Bigfoot. They're riding horses. They see it. The one guy jumps down, continues to do it. The other guy splashes through the water. And that's when the Bigfoot turns to look to see where they are. And that's called the Patterson Gimlin film. Patterson died of uh, lymphoma. Not long after that, the other guy, which never got anything but grief in his whole life, Bob Gimlin, I think he's 90 now. I've had breakfast with him a couple different times and mm. talked to him and find him believable. I mean, there's whole books written on the subject. Bill Munns wrote one when, uh, when Patty, when he, let's see, when James meet Patty, Harry meet Patty or something like that. It's exhaustive in the research in it. There's very, really very little, you know, Bigfoot is one of those things that normal people are living your life. You know, you got a wife, you got kids, you got a job, you got your house, you all this stuff that we're all doing and everybody might have an interest or a hobby they're doing that they know something about it. But you know, Bigfoot is an unusual one. So there's just not that many people that are keeping up with all the research that's out there regarding Bigfoot, you know, and rightfully so everybody's busy, but it's weird because everybody has an opinion about Bigfoot. Even the people living in towns will tell you that they haven't, whether or not something could exist or not exist. And I know on Instagram, sometimes I'll go on and I'll go in the store and I'll ask people, you know, I'll say, can I ask you a question for instance? They'll say, yeah, I, say, I just got one question. It's not bad. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And instantly everyone has a big smile. Everyone. It doesn't matter if they believe they don't believe whatever. They all have a big smile because it's the monster we all grew up with and everybody knows what a Bigfoot is. Right. So I don't think there's any question that the Patterson Gimlin film is real and there's naysayers and whatever it happens to be. But the reality is when there's an educated person talking about it, they just get shot down for a deep dive, the podcast Astonishing Legends did a seven part, I think it was seven parts, right. maybe six parts. So it's like six hours long just on that. On the Patterson Gimlin film, you can go in there, it's exhaustive. But if it's your deal and you're interested in it, it proves, you know, once again, like so many things do, that that it's a real deal. Now, I'm going to say that there's a recent book that came out called uh, The Freeman Bigfoot Files. There was a researcher in the 70s named Paul Freeman, it was controversial. And he was this forest ranger and he was patrolling this uh, water Creek shed that provided water for Walla Walla, Washington. No one was allowed in there. Maybe elk hunters like a week, a year or something like that. And they patrolled it and he had a Bigfoot sighting and got interested and started collecting tracks and stuff and got some footage as well. And it became controversial because of how much he got, but it really wasn't that much. And the book came out recently and I had the honor of going through it and helping with some of the, uh, editing or whatever, just light stuff and going back and seeing the old interviews and all that stuff. And some of the new footage enhanced footage. Now that we can do with digital stuff to be able to look at it better. Now I'm convinced that that footage is one of the best footages that's out there as well. Okay, Excellent. Um, 
I'm sorry, Jeff. I don't remember what else it was you asked me. Uh, probably the more serious one is what type of do you think? What type of creature do you think? Do you think it's an uh, animal, a primate, human, hominid? And do you think that all of the different variation, the different names around the world? I use the word cognates. That may or may not apply depending on your answer. But the year and the the Sasquatch, the Yeti, etc. Yeah. If if it's all sort Bigfoot, if it's all the same, you know, maybe perhaps speciated. But do you, do, you, do you think it's all yeah. the same? And what do you think it is? You know, I don't research the ones in other countries, but it's it's hard to imagine it isn't all related, right? Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of it's lately it's interesting when people say things like we say things like Bigfoot is a primate because like we're primates too, right? And it's really a broad term, and we're right. saying Bigfoot's a hominid, and that's true too because it's a really broad term. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's um, the easiest thing for it to be would be gigantopithecus or an offshoot. That's the most, as one of my friends would say, parsimonious ways for it to be because it's already in place. All the things happen. It's already existed. We know it's there. We just don't know for sure whether or not it was here. Now, you know, keep in mind, like, you know, how many years does it take for a fossil to, to come about? It's, you know, on, on average, it's around 10,000 years. Oh, okay. So how many years ago was the land bridge open? 10 to 20,000 years ago. So or longer. probably... Whatever came over, there, there's not fossils here. It hasn't been here long enough. Yeah, and when people say land I mean, bridge, apparently, I mean, it was a bridge at some point at the end, but it was like a continent. It was, a, you know, Beringia. It was, it yeah, was a, it was like a, yes, yeah, it was a full continental shelf. Yeah, during the ice age, you know, things could travel across from Russia to Alaska, and largely they were coming through up through Asia to be able to do the same, and that's how most of the things got here. You know, now we're seeing some of the, um, I think it's the Catalina Islands off California. You know. Um, that we're seeing that some of the things may have come a little earlier, that they were coming along the water, you know, with uh, canoes. Um, Everything keeps getting older. Yeah, it really does. Um, and, you know, there's more things that we find that, that all the time, you know, we, it's so interesting how humans always think that we know so much, say like, take the um, spotted owl, you know, the spotted owl is rare. You know, we're going to protect the spotted owl and we shut down all this timbering. We do all this stuff, but we, we also put out all the forest fires. And so what happens? It goes extinct because what humans did, you know, we find out later that, you know, it needs secondary growth. Well, we do away with all secondary growth. That's where it nested at. Right. But humans, we always have good intentions, but, you know, we're just not that inclined to understand how our history works and the, and the planet works around us. So, I mean, I think that that's in the end that there's a lot of evidence that something could possibly be out there. And the people that take it serious are just saying that, you know, let's just pause and say that, you know, maybe we don't know everything. Maybe something could be out there and, um, you know, let it be at that. Okay. So you're noncommittal, but definitely uh, primate hominin. Uh, hominin. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. And like I said, that's, you know, it's such a broad term that almost fit, anything fits in, but yes. Well, that's fine. Listen, that's, that's fair. That's uh, prudent. And then the last one was, what is... What do you think the best portrayal in the, the, the mass media of Bigfoot is? I, generally, I mean movies, TV, and what's your favorite if they're not the same? Mm, the one that thing that really bugs me is you've seen all those little statues they have everywhere, like they have them for yard arts and all this stuff. Of course. And they have this apish nose with a nostril sticking up, and mm-hmm. that's just not the way that Bigfoot is because that's the way that something like a gorilla would be that's in a rainforest, you know, that it's trying to get rid of um, humidity, mm-hmm. you know, Bigfoot has a covered nose, a flattened nose that's larger and human-like, but like kind of like a boxer's nose, more pushed down. 
which makes a lot more sense because, you know, it's trying to keep the air warmer that it's taking in, something you expect to see in this type of species. So I'm annoyed by the representations that are so popular. Do I have any of those statues? Yes, everybody gives them to me for all the time, and they're in my house and my yards and everything else. Um, You're not an ingrate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was a uh, movie, I'm trying to think, uh, it was called Letters from the Big Man. And it originally became popular as an independent movie and it gained some traction. And I think that the creature that they had in that movie looked real and was pretty representative. Okay. I'm going to check. I'm going to see if I can find that movie letters from the big man. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that's the best and your favorite. So yeah. All right. Very cool. Yeah, right. I like it. T- tell the folks again uh, about the, the book that's coming out second edition. Yeah. So um, and where else they can find you and support you. You can find me, uh, my webpage is called thebigfootdoc.com. You can find my books on there. You can find um, my podcast on there, a link to it. You can follow me, like I met Jeff on Twitter, the Bigfoot Doc. It's not the Bigfoot Doc, it's just Bigfoot Doc. I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, West Virginia uh, page. I show a lot of techniques for collecting DNA evidence on there, and I put a lot of reports on the West Virginia Bigfoot page has a footprint on the top, um, easy to find. So if someone would like to tell a story or whatever, I'm always game for hearing one. I just did one before I talked to Jeff. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on here. Finally done. Oh, it was great, man. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. I really, I, I've been, I've been meaning to do a proper Bigfoot show for a while, but it's been more theoretical rather than reaching out. And it didn't take a lot of reaching out. You were, you were generous with your time and, and said, yes, you know, basically right away. Appreciate it. I've enjoyed your show. I've enjoyed some of your colleague shows as well. Um, so I, I wish you well. Hopefully we'll keep in touch, obviously, on yeah. Twitter. If you can stick through all my ridiculous wrestling chaff. That's <laughs> what I use Twitter for. Uh, yeah. This big smarty pants has been watching wrestling for almost 50 years now. So I guess that says something about uh, me. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and I'm not going to stop. Shut up. I don't care. Don't judge me. Or do. Uh, anyway. So thank you all for tuning in to Garden of Doom. You're definitely going to hear from us again next week. And Thank you for your ratings and your reviews, and most importantly, your referrals. Thank you again, Dr. Russ Jones, and uh, we'll listen to you all again next week in the Garden of Doom.